Welcome to the Teachers Unified Podcast. I'm Sarah Lerner. On this episode, we'll hear from Jack Hilton, a social worker in Maine who specializes in trauma-informed counseling. He shares how his personal trauma and work as a local journalist led him to a career in social work. He also talks about EMDR, gives some tips for when someone becomes activated and anxious, and the benefits of therapy. So welcome to the podcast. We are here with Jack Hilton, who is a former student of mine, not from Stoneman Douglas, but way back in the day at South Plantation High School. I had Jack in journalism on my newspaper staff. I was trying to remember what year you graduated, but then I think my brain stopped working because I didn't want to realize that I've known you for so long. 2012. When I graduated. (laughs) Okay, so I have known you then since 2009 or 10. It's my sophomore year, which would have been, I think, uh, 2009. Yep. Good. That's awful. Okay, so I so my daughter was born in 2009. So this is how long I've known you. And just for fun facts for everybody, I went to Jack's wedding And he has two adorable children. And I am what I like to call a grand teacher because (laughs) I have so many students who've had children, which makes me feel old, but it's a story for another show. Let's start with the basics back to the beginning. Tell me about you, your family, where you grew up, your childhood, all of that. So originally I'm from Montreal, Canada. Um, you know, born into a family of, uh, my mom's from Italy, so Italians, uh, but my biological father was like a Scottish and a Scottish traveler, um, famous boxing family um, on both sides of my family. Uh, but my biological father, unfortunately, was just a, a very horrible human being. And it's just, you know, so grew up with severe trauma. And my family and I, my mom, my siblings, uh, we were undocumented immigrants in the United States when we uh, fled from Canada uh, when I was about like six. So, you know, my mom raised us essentially in Florida from then on out. Um just working three to four jobs. My sister's two working three to four jobs with my mom to support, you know, just kind of laying low, just kind of that always that fear of the mafia, but also my my biological father. My upbringing is a, a tricky one when it comes to answering that question, because it really is like a its own like stars documentary TV series. Um, but honestly, one of those things that contribute to the work that I do now, as we'll talk about a little bit later, um, but yeah, as I grew up pretty much in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Miami area. Um, just two years, we moved every every single time just to a hardworking Italian woman. And I've met your mom and she is wonderful. Yeah, she's uh, she's wonderful, a little insane, you know, which is fine because that's part of her charm. Exactly. <laughs> part of my charm too, you know. But honestly, one of the most inspiring uh, individual ever uh, would be a role model to men and women across the field. You know, that in itself just pushes you in the right path, seeing how hard your your mother works and, you know, the work that she did to ensure that her kids live the life that we are living right now, all of us. Part of that journey, when I talk about trauma, isn't just like the abuse and uh, being unhoused, but also my bio- my mom's brother was also a famous boxer, but murdered in Brazil. Uh, he was kind of like a father figure throughout our upbringing in uh, Florida. And, you know, we would come often because he would train in Florida and take care of us um, and just really just surprise us. Uh, but just met the, the wrong woman. And, you know, unfortunately, when you come sometimes with the stardom, you know, it comes with just bad attraction. And um, I wouldn't say he had the, the best insight to healthy relationship dynamics, but that was probably, yeah, honestly, that was the transition from freshman year of high school to sophomore year and why I wanted to do TV news uh, was his death. It was a sen- very sensational and always on the news. Um, and there we met because I wanted to make a difference and do investigative reporting. So I found the woman in charge. I don't know that I knew that your uncle was murdered. Yeah, oh yeah. Um cuz that know. was that was before we met. The summer right before yeah. we met. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry. I don't I don't know that I knew that. One of those things where, you know, 
just because of how raw I think it was losing someone like a father to you. And I always try to be very like positive and optimistic, you know, and just always try to move forward. I, I try to just, I was always like class protector and helper of others. So I always really did my best to hide my own vulnerability and my own trauma until it really builds up and just contributes to your own depression, right? And I think this is exactly, you know, where it has helped me though in my own field of how to reach people, uh, connect with people in this, um, in the world of social work, but also therapy, um, but also helping me create my own like, like, boundary of like, I'm not in therapy, you know, in the world of working as a therapist to save anybody. I'm not in this field to um, fix anybody either. You know, it's not a field for me to fix my own stuff. You know, I worked on that stuff, you know, as I've gotten through things. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to first mention is, you know, seeing a therapist is so important. Therapists should see therapists. Uh, but also that, you know, a therapy is a an environment where, where someone should be able to feel vulnerable and begin to work on some of those things that adds up into their lives. So you, you don't really realize this, but when trauma happens, it almost always leads to some type of dissociation um, and fragmentations in the brain. Your brain begins to really re rewire itself and see the world um, and the hypervigilance that, you know, brain that it is, you know, having to function and to ensure that you are always surviving, even when you don't have to be. And that just leads into some of those symptoms of PTSD, depression, anxiety that you mentioned. And it, it just is lifelong until you begin to work on it. It doesn't just stop because we get older. I want to get into all of that, but I want to find out or have you share how you went from wanting to be a broadcast journalist into therapy, because I think that's a very interesting journey that also took you through with like foster kids in South Florida. Oh, my gosh. I remember that one time I saw you <laughs> driving Coral Springs. Yep. <laughs> I have my, my foster kids, you know, that I was mentoring in the car. Yep. Um, yeah. So with TV news, you know, when I was in it and in school, you know, I was already like when I was in high school, it was fun. It was something amazing. It was our own little thing. We had such power with the, the sword and shield. When I went through college, you know, I was already kind of hitting some of the um, cognitive dissonance of like, wait a minute here. Um, I had a lot of professors um, just kind of be very sensational in their own kind of language that I was kind of getting kind of conflicted. I remember one professor, he was, he, he said something about a reporter who said something very vulgar. And I was just like, why would you even say that? Like, why would you ever, it was very disgustingly vulgar, like about somebody younger and, you know, but in like, while the, it was a point to not speak inappropriately while you were wearing a mic, it's always hot. Right. But it was just like the concept, why would that person say something? And I said that, I'm like, why would he say that? And he looked at me, he's like, you know, I worry about you, Jack, you know, and how you would thrive in this field because you're you're too nice, you know, and you're you're too innocent and naive. And I was just like, well, all because I don't agree with this vulgar statement doesn't mean that I'm naive or, um, you know, so it really just kind of like stained a little bit my perspective of like reporting. But I, I was going to stay the course because with that, I, you know, was still very inspired by Steve Hartman. <laughs> I, and I met, you know, his photographer uh, who has been a huge role model. And just that was my, I wanted, I believe everyone had a story and that's what I wanted to do. And so I'm like, well, you know, I might not be good for the sensational stuff, but I'm very good at highlighting people's lives. So I'm going to do that and just kind of still pursued it. Um, even though I was kind of wrestling with my, my thoughts about journalism because of my professors and just like social work and teaching, you know, you, you, you hear, this is not the field. If you want to get rich, you know, you're going to be poor. Um, and I, lo and behold, you know, I got uh, a job where I was interning at uh, a, a local news station here, WVII, WFVX, um, ABC seven, Fox 22. And it was amazing. I'm like, I got hired before I even graduated. So I was like really inspired, you know, it was 23,000 a year with no overtime or, you know, additional pay. I was making it, I was totally making it. Um, and it was fun for the first year of doing that type of field, but you start to kind of see the exploitation that goes on in the, in the field like that. You know, you really, as an individual in this field, put so much of yourself into it. And then it's like, repeat and do it the next day. And nothing that you did yesterday, you know, depending on where you're living, can, you know, I felt re was really making a huge difference. Like you, you make 
certain stories. And when you do some of those stories, especially with the ones I like to do where the people have a story, I, I talked a lot about like mental health. Those I know had like longstanding effects for the individual I worked with. Uh, but some of the like, oh, you know, um, Ellsworth just got a new sign. So I'm driving like 45 minutes to two hours <laughs> to cover something about a sign driving by. You know, I was an MMJ. So I was kind of doing everything myself. And so I had my own camera. I had my own, you know, you know, I had to stand in front of the cameras, put my bag on the tripod so it doesn't tip over when it when <laughs> the wind blew over. Uh, so I had to do it all and come back um, and have to do like six stories before the show started, you know, at six. And I would just put my heart and soul into it and then still kind of receive like you're everyone's favorite reporter, but we don't really see you as an investigative reporter or a feature story. I kind of see you as a reporter who is like, one day you'll cover a gumball story and then you'll do something else. And you're just like, hmm, you know, I don't really see you as an anchor. You know, that was a feedback I got from my news director, who I love, who's super nice to me. But it's just like, why am I here? You know, no one kind of sees me in this like, a, like a serious role. I, I felt like Bruce Almighty. That's the way the cookie crumbles, you know, and, and not the work that I wanted to do anyway. But in some of that and some of that like depressive slump, I started to cover some stories about people uh, making a difference through very like nonprofit organizations, uh, social work roles and therapists. And then I started to get kind of this interest because I would leave some of those stories with I should be doing that. Like I should be the you know what people should be reporting about, like out there making a difference and actually like putting my feet on the ground. And I started just to kind of talk to people and kind of as I geared my stories towards mental health, I started talking to the psychologists and social works like, what is it that you're doing? Talk to me a little bit about that. One of my biggest superpowers, I think, that I've always been told is I made people feel like at ease, as if the camera wasn't even on them. I just got inspired by some of the mental health related uh, stories. And honestly, um, I would say... You know, the situation that happened even with, with you, uh, you know, it's just funny how sometimes your your lives cross paths several times. You know, I remember looking on the news and seeing that Stoneman Douglas was experiencing, you know, a horrific event and my, my heart just instantly dropped. But looking at how uh, the school uh, had emergency individuals in the mental health field, like helping individuals with EMDR and, you know, therapy, and just wanting to be somebody who um, responded to crisis situations just kind of left me kind of feeling more inspired than TV news. So it's it's usually through the stories and then another horrific event that kind of leaves you like, I want to help people who are struggling. And just like that, I looked at what that would entail. And I got my master's in social work, looked, you know, went to FAU for another year. Um, while I was at FAU, looked at jobs related to what I did, you know, what I wanted to do without me having to have my master's. And I ran into YOLO uh, mentoring company and that worked with like local child welfare agencies in South Florida. Um, and I was able to kind of take on, it was per diem. So it worked with my schedule as a student at this, at the university. Um, and I was able to mentor kids in foster care for a year. And that was a, a very fun experience. So you came from Canada down mm -hmm. to South Florida, went yep. to college in Maine, Sure did. came back to South Florida, and now you're back in Maine. Yeah, I really hated South Florida all my life. <laughs> um, honestly, I really did. Uh, it was hot. Um, and I think there was a part of me that really felt like we abandoned my family in Canada. Um, you know, we went from having this huge Italian family and that I would regularly see because um, part of that being unhoused, not just in Florida, but my my father being a, essentially a gypsy, there was just always this this traveling all the time and not not ever really living very much in a secure type of environment. So we often found ourselves living with family members. So I went from living with family members to not having family at all and who I couldn't see for more than 13 years. So I wasn't able to really see a lot of my family members from Canada. Uh, while I was in Florida. So we were really on this island. Uh, so I kind of grew this disdain, I think, towards uh, living in Florida, but also the heat was just horrible. Uh, I think my internal, you know, igloos that, you know, <laughs> you know, cooler just was just never tolerating the weather because of that. And I went to Maine um, when I saw, I got like this pamphlet that talked about this 
New England School of Communications at the time um, before it was Huston University. And it was just like you need hands-on journalism. I didn't have to learn a second language of like Spanish number two or chemistry or get ACT, SAT, which I'm horrible at math. So I was happy and thrilled about. And like, it gets me closer to Canada. Let's do it. And then I moved back down to Florida after, uh, you know, hating news. And I just couldn't do it. That The traffic <laughs> got worse. I felt it got even hotter. Um, and people, the amount of times I almost got hit because people passed red lights. I just, it was a different environment. And I felt that in Maine, my wife and I really created this community that, you know, between our church, our friends, and like, we just had this routine. In Florida, everyone's houses were like 30 minutes away. And it really is this huge effort to feel connected to other people, uh, besides our family members that, you know, live closer to our house. So it was just, and with a lot of like other, like personal family dynamics, we we're like, let's just go back to Maine. <laughs> Things were good there. <laughs> okay, so you go back up to Maine. So how did you find your way into therapy? Like after you got your master's and everything, like, did you work at a facility? Did you work for yourself? I actually finished my first year at Florida Atlantic University, but had to transfer to UMaine to finish my last ha half of my master's program up here. Um, I, I was that desperate to leave Florida. But I also like the issue about living in Florida, you know, being such a big time uh, reporter of this area is I had contacts. Um, and I didn't have that in Florida. So I, I really felt very lost uh, about, even though I grew up that way, I had no idea what I was like, who I would even talk to. I wouldn't even know who to reach out to about jobs and everything's so spread out. Um, I didn't want to be driving to Boca for a job and you might have to do that for a better pay. So I really felt like a fish way out of water in Florida where, you know, I felt like a big fish in Maine. And so I essentially went out while I was finishing my last year for my master's in Maine, University of Maine, I called a few like contacts that I knew that worked for the local psychiatric hospital, Acadia Hospital, who were higher in that in that facility that pointed me to uh, a per diem position as a psychiatric technician on the inpatient unit. So I worked with kids for another year uh, as a as a per diem psych tech while I was finishing my master's program. And then finally just transitioned into a clinician position from an internal hire. So I worked at a psychiatric hospital as a clinician for three and a half years. What types of work do you do? Like what are your areas of specialty? Now it's definitely trauma. It, you know, I think you run into a lot of issues. Sometimes you have a therapist who's like, oh yeah, I'm trauma therapist, but they really just have people talk about their trauma so in depth that re-traumatizes the individual. I don't think that all therapists are trauma therapists. And so when I first graduated, I was very much what I would call eclectic. I was good at just very general CBT, you know, mindfulness, DBT but really felt that this was just very limited in the way that I was helping individuals facing a very acute psychiatric symptoms. And not all of our clients had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Most, if not all of them had trauma. And so I looked at what type of work would benefit individuals in an inpatient setting and began doing a lot of training in structural dissociation, which is to really work with individuals with severe chronic trauma, uh, those with complex PTSD, and then also an EMDR, um, which is like several hours that you have to do. And so I started myself using the funds that the hospital offered for trainings to, you know, and some of the funds more, you know, you know, past them what was allotted to me as other clinicians weren't using their funds. So I started, I'll use it. And so I started really taking so many trauma focused type of courses um, and CEUs that uh, go beyond just being a like a, an eclectic therapist. So I am certainly a beneficiary of EMDR, and I know how wonderful it is. Can you explain what it is and how it can be helpful after trauma? Yeah, absolutely. So EMDR, so let me, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. It's the longest name ever, but that's why we call it EMDR. Um, it's the idea that when trauma occurs, you know, for individuals, it can get stuck in the memory network. And that causes what the symptoms of PTSD, the negative sense of self, 
And so it really utilizes what we call the three-pronged protocol. So the three-pronged protocol is how the past affects the present, which obviously affects the future. And so we use bilateral stimulation. So you really can't see my hands, but bilateral stimulation could be my fingers kind of waving back and forth, you know, for uh, in front of someone's face. It could be a light bar, vibration tappers, um, but it gets a person's eyes going left to far right. And the idea when um, Francine Shapiro developed this was that by moving your eyes left and right while also holding the uh, trauma memory, you were able to help the memory that is stuck process through the memory network. And it has greatly shown that, you know, three 90-minute sessions of EMDR could greatly reduce the need for Prozac. So, it, I mean, it's being adopted even in like the VA clinics. So it really is something that a lot of research and um, different agencies are adopting. I found it so helpful when I was initially going through therapy, like post uh, February 14th. So my husband, who I know you've met a few times, his background is in psychology. He's not a clinician, um, but his bachelor's and his master's are both in psychology. And we have the DSM-4 at home. And I know the five is out and whatever. Five TR is out now too. Okay. Well, we have the four. So I remember him saying to me, it was probably like three months after the shooting. He's like, I think you have PTSD. And I just looked at him like he was crazy. And I'm like, but I don't like, how would I even have that? Like I wasn't in the building. I didn't see, I didn't hear blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but you did hear and you experienced this. And I think you have it. Just bring it up to the therapist. I'm like, okay. So I did. And, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor and you've already like diagnosed yourself. So I'm like, this is my husband. This is what he thinks. I don't think I do. And she opened up the DSM-5 and it said something along the lines of, you know, you have PTSD if you have like one of the following. I had all of them. And I'm like, snap. And like, as a wife, you never want to admit that your spouse is right. <laughs> but, he, <laughs> but he was right. And that was when we started doing EMDR and it was like, I don't even know how to describe it, like how helpful it was. But she had um, these little things that I held in peppers, the vibration yeah, pepper in my hands. And she would push the button on her end of the device and she had me hold them and I would close my eyes. And I just remember like her putting me back in that situation. Like I'm back in my room when this happened or I'm going up the stairs to go back into my classroom. And sometimes I would just be like so overwhelmed with emotion. I would cry. And then other times I wouldn't. And I, it was just so exhausting from you know, emoting and processing and putting yourself back in that trauma. But as exhausting as it was, it was such a relief. Like I left those sessions feeling incredibly tired, <laughs> like I needed a nap, but also like a burden, a weight had been lifted off of me. And I know at least in our small community, you know, of survivors at Stoneman Douglas, a number of the teachers, and I believe students have done it. And it, oh my God, what a blessing. And to have such a network of trauma trained clinicians has been so, so wonderful. And I don't know if other communities that have gone through what we have have people who are trained and, you know, specialize in this I mean, it is just so, so helpful. I still take anxiety meds and I still need therapy, but I've been able to process a lot of the trauma. And I know a couple of teachers who were in the building have been able to process through EMDR and through therapy things that they saw and heard and experienced, which is different from mine, but it was very helpful for them too. Yeah. When it comes to like trauma and PTSD, you know, 
a lot of individuals I've worked with, they're like, I'm not a soldier. So why do I have PTSD? How can I have PTSD? And really just getting people to break that stigma that you don't have to be somebody who's in the military to have PTSD. That's when they really started to hone in on shell shock. But when more research, you know, were looked into it, they started to see that those women in domestic violent relationships had PTSD. And so it really, I, I hoped have really changed the, the conversations, but obviously still from the countless clients I, I work with that don't even realize they have trauma and you're like, wait a minute, this is trauma. You know, I always say we can't compare ourselves to other people. You know, even in your situation, for example, like you were in a community, not even the greater Parkland, you know, community, but also the school community, the community within the school, there's relationships lost, right? That of course you would have PTSD, you know? Um, but I just it, didn't think that I could because I was in a different building. You know, like yeah. it just didn't register to me, like those people in the building, like clearly to me would have it. But I wasn't in that building. I was in a building next door. How could I possibly have it? OK, your, well, I do. Your brain, yeah, your brain was going. <laughs> it sure was. It sure Something was. that really bothers me and not that this has anything to do with anything. But when other people say that they have PTSD from like, I don't even know, like a bad experience at a restaurant or like, oh, I have PTSD from like that store at the mall because they didn't have the size shirt I wanted. Like when people are using that term so flippantly, it really bothers me. And I was watching MSNBC, which I love because I am so left. I'm about to fall off the cliff. I was watching and I think it was Deadline White House with Nicole Wallace. And she said something and it wasn't even meant with like ill intent, but you know, like, oh, I have PTSD from whatever it was. And like, this was when Twitter was still a good place. And I messaged her and I'm like, as someone with PTSD to use that term so generically, you know, like I just, whatever I said was certainly more eloquent than I'm explaining it now. And she actually messaged me back and she apologized and she's like, you're right. You know, I, I shouldn't have used that blah, blah, blah. But like, People do that all the time. And I find that even like at school, like I'm correcting my students and I don't mean to be like a dick about it, but I'm like, all right, guys, really? Like this is not the actual definition of what PTSD is. Like you just had a bad day or you just don't like that teacher. And I think while everyone is so open to talk about mental health in a different way now than they were years ago, or even when you were my student, like, I don't think we as teacher and student would have had this type of conversation, but I have it now with my, with my students. I'm glad that the conversation has changed, but I think that people feel a little too free to use terms that don't necessarily apply to them or the situation. Does that make sense? hundred percent. No, even triggered, right? I think with the political climate that would triggered, I really think that like, it's hard for me to engage with a client and say, well, what triggers you? And they, they automatically be like, oh, this person thinks I'm, I'm a Karen, <laughs> you know? And you're just like, no, like uh, your brain does respond to triggers. And it's important to have these conversations and the education that you're providing a news reporter and even, you know, uh, your students is very important because it really does create the the sensitivity of language one, but also like it, it's helping people not contribute, I think, to the stigmatization of uh, the word. And even um, I, I think when we hear some of the mental health stuff, it's hard for us to take things seriously when people aren't taking it seriously. And I will say that also not everybody with trauma have PTSD. You know, I had right. severe trauma and I don't think I can ever say I had truly PTSD um, in the way that it is. But mental health professionals sometimes will also slap that that label on people. And it's just not helping, I think, in ensuring that people are getting the care um, that they need. And even understanding like, well, if this person has PTSD, like we got to make sure is it like complex PTSD? which is in the DSM-5, but it's really respected and understood in the grand scheme of our, our field. And chronic trauma comes with, C CPTSD comes with dissociation, right? These are things to really be mindful of. Um, but even in our own field, my field, we willy-nilly just kind of, oh yeah, PTSD. <laughs> and you're like, what does that mean? 
Do you have any suggestions for things that people can do if they're feeling anxious or if their trauma brain has been reactivated? Um, see a therapist. That's <laughs> <laughs> see a therapist. Uh, but right, it's learning those skills. So the issue about like when you get activated, there's a lot of stuff that you don't see, obviously, in your brain going on. So your prefrontal cortex shuts down. That is your ability to reason, use uh, healthy coping strategies. And then as your frontal cortex shuts down, your limbic system kicks in. Your fight, flight, free, submit, cry for help part kicks in. And then you're in it. You're you're reacting as if you're in the moments of the trauma. So really a good therapist is going to help you recognize when you're triggered, recognize what your body is doing. You know, what are some signs that you are already triggered before your brain makes that connection or before it doesn't ever make that connection. So really learning your body and what your body's telling you. Uh, one of the, a great book, it's very triggering uh, to read, but the body keeps the score. But it really talks about the fact that when trauma happens, it lives in your body. It, it manifests not just in your like your memory, but your 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 sensations, uh, your memory, like your sight, your smell, your taste, like your physical pain, like your trauma will manifest in physical pain, even though it's from years ago. And there's nothing really actually like physically wrong with you. Somatic symptoms. So learning to pay attention to your body is so important to help you, I think, navigate when your brain is activated and ready to sweep you into this like dysregulation. Um, and then healthy coping strategies. Some people go to church. Some people hang out with friends. Some people sing songs. Some people meditate. Some people pray. I don't know. You fill in the blanks. I, something that grounds you is important, but doing it when you first notice that you're triggered, that way you're able to feel like it actually is helping. When you're in a crisis situation, the last thing you want someone to say is just breathe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pray about it. It will go away. You know, you, you know, you're not, you're, you're so focused on surviving and like, you know, just making it through this moment, you know, someone saying, just take your pill. <laughs> like, it won't help. And if it does, it won't help to the effect that it would if you were already in maybe a, a state before you're escalated. So I honestly, my biggest recommendation is get yourself honestly uh, connected to a therapist and you do not need to be quote unquote, so sick that you need a therapist. Like I would say the most healthy people should have a therapist because you can never predict, as you know, when bad things happen. Like there is no way to predict that somebody's going to cause harm to other people. There's no way to predict that someone's going to run a red light. There is no way to expect anything in this world. So it's important to have a therapist because then when things do come up, you're able to have somebody to process it versus letting some of those fears really go really deeply into your soul, really. Um, and that belief, of, I'm not safe. You know, the world is dangerous. You know, letting that fester into a bigger tree than the roots that it is already there. You know, really just dig that tree up before it's very tall. Um, but a therapist or, you know, some type of counselor, I think is so important kind of connecting to what you were just talking about, like taking care of it before it becomes this huge thing, because you can't predict what's going to happen. This is going to air in a couple of weeks, but today there was um, news of a shooting at Perry High School in Perry, Iowa. You know, anytime there is any type of school shooting, mass shooting, like any huge gun violence, for me at least, and I know most if not all in this shitty club that I belong to, we all kind of react to it. After the shooting at Uvalde, like I just sat on the couch numb and just kind of staring off into space in part because they were little kids and it was a school shooting and like so many different things. But then I felt the same way after the Tree of Life shooting because I'm Jewish and that was at a synagogue. So outside of therapy and all of that, like what would you suggest for a gun violence survivor when they hear about something like this on the news? Because I think the simple response is, well, turn off the news. But that's not always possible because part of you wants to know what's going on. But then the other part of you, for me at least, even though it's a different situation, I find that I am put right back into my own experience and then I, I get stuck. So like I don't want to hear more, but I also feel that I need to hear more. So what would you suggest for someone, <laughs> someone like me? 
No, no, honestly, I, and you, you, you already said the language that I was about to uh, bring up. Um, you get a gold star for that. Uh, Thank part, you. I do parts work. I do parts work before I even do EMDR work. Parts work comes from the structural dissociation or internal family systems model. It's the belief that, you know, the brain, it really is uh, not just like this one self, right? We have kind of parts of us that really mold who we are. And that comes from really from an early state in our lives onwards. And so that's why like part of us is like this successful person. But when we're with our parents, we feel really, really little and insignificant despite having a doctor and a, saving the world as a neurosurgeon, you know, like it's this part that's stuck and is still stuck, even when we think we're, we're processing it in therapy. And that's why sometimes I'm a fan of EMDR. Sometimes I'm not. It's because I think further parts work is needed for some people, but unblending from these parts you know that's that's what what really i was going to talk about is the fact that when you're noticing this increase in hypervigilance anxiety is really just kind of taking a step back just enough where you can feel the emotions but also like feel that you're present now and just begin to say what part is feeling that i'm not safe right now you know what part is feeling that i'm you know i'm in it still okay well where am i okay i'm in i'm i'm at my mom's house, which is far from this location of the trauma, you know, uh, okay, I, I, I'm i breathing, like tapping, you know, doing some grounding skills, but learning to unblend from the activated emotion and the sensations of the trauma that's being swept over you right now in the moment, you know, it, it really is uh, a difficult thing because again, it really requires sometimes you to notice that you're about to get flooded into it. These parts really manifest in this protector role, um, this I'm helpless kind of feeling and it really to take a step back and remind yourself wait am I really helpless like am I helpless right now right right now is what you're talking about and just taking some of those steps to unblend from that part is what I would recommend knowledge of parts and speaking the language of parts which is going to kind of help you because what's going on is you're like especially if you're staring off in the distance your your body and your brain is still reacting as if you're now back in the school despite that it's the school. So there's a part of you that isn't processing the memory because it probably won't let you do that until you truly feel like you're safe. I never thought of it that way. I just, I don't know how I thought of it actually. I just figure it's this news and it just sounds so similar to mine. And there is a feeling of helplessness, but also, as you said, this hypervigilance, like I want to do something, I want to be involved, I want to know more, but I can't do anything because I'm not in Texas or I'm not in Iowa, or I'm not, you know, wherever it is. And it can be stifling. And uh, I can't think of the other word I'm looking for, but like, almost like you're frozen, if that makes sense. Switching gears a little bit. I know that your Instagram, your professional Instagram is unsung empath. How does being an empath help you help others? Yeah, unsung empath. I the name comes from the fact that you know social workers are truly just unsung helpers and feelers of the world. Like really, like I I worked in a hospital uh, for you know four and a half years altogether, and really social. And even when you listen to the world of like mental health professionals, like no one ever talks about social workers. You know, uh, they talk about psychologists, psychiatrists, nurses. You know, and people don't even know what social workers are. We, they think we take kids away. And so that's like people's like, when you think social worker, you think this like middle-aged woman who's ready to snatch a child away for CPS. Right. Furthest from the truth, like uh, social workers work in all aspects of the field and medical to policy and even direct practice. Like most of your therapists and individual practice are social workers probably. Um, and so it, it really is one of those things where when you're working with other professionals, like a psychiatrist, I found that so many of them just didn't understand the scope. And so I was, when I first started my field, I was writing some of the doctor's notes. I'm like, wait a minute, I have a master's degree. This master's degree allows me to run my own practice, do EMDR, allows me to diagnose disorders and treat them. Does this doctor not get that? And so that's probably what 
really contributed to me becoming quote unquote, I don't think I'll ever be an expert, but an expert in my field, that's what, you know, they would refer to me as, but I, that's the farthest from the truth because it's always changing and growing, but it really made me develop this niche because then those same doctors that would like kind of sort of talk down to you, like, oh, you're a social worker. They started to go to me for suggestions uh, related to trauma related symptoms. And so really the unsung empath comes from the fact that like, you know, we're such helpers, but really not praised enough or even looked towards enough. And so working as somebody who's very empathic with people is really just, I, I think going back to what I initially said at the very beginning of this podcast, it's the fact that I'm here to help people. I'm not here to fix people. You know, I'm here to do the most that I can in session, not carry your weight when I leave session, right? And I think that's the the hardest thing about um, empaths and really in, in our field is that we we overly care and we overly feel we're involved. And that can lead to poor boundaries. It can lead to burnout, vicarious trauma, fill in all the blanks. For me, when I work with clients, I I really do in the moment care with about them i'm with them in there in the in the moment i created a space for them to feel vulnerable and feel secure and safe but it's not me to then leave and bring it home to my family and i think that's an important thing when bad stuff happens even in our community we had that lewiston shooting you know that really hit our community like i help the best that i can using emergency emdr you know helping those in lewiston um, the agency I'm affiliated with that like does like the insurance, uh, they put like a, a list of providers to help people. But that's what I can do as a as a helper is respond to the need, but also like know that some of the needs isn't what I didn't cause people to live in the situation that they're in. I didn't cause people that have the trauma. So why am I taking on their trauma and then feeling like it's mine to hold or bear? right? That's not really empowering people. Empowering people is giving it back to them and saying, you got this, you know, and I'm going to help walk alongside you to help you through it. As you were just explaining all of that, it really made me think like teachers are the same way. I try and leave my stuff at school, but sometimes I can't. I don't think, well, for me, at least it doesn't lead to unhealthy boundaries. But, you know, if a student when I read their college essays, since I teach seniors for English, you know, when I read these things, I can't always leave it at school. And sometimes it does kind of blend into my home life. But I think, you know, for you, for me, for our professions, it is important to set those boundaries for yourself, but also for your patients, my students. Like, look, I'm here to help you, but I can't take this on right now. Let me get you to somebody who can. Exactly right. My wife is a teacher and, you know, the amount of social worker like characteristics, that, you know, that she finds herself in is a lot. Uh, the amount of like individuals who are neglected in the community that she serves as a teacher, you know, is astronomical as well as like the substance use. And my my wife does what she can. Um, she reports it to the nat like the the natural order of who she needs to talk to. Uh, to address the matter. But at the end of the day, it's one of those things where her job is to teach and be present for the students. You know, for your students, you being the friendly, funny, easygoing professor uh, or teacher or, you know, elementary teacher, you name it, whatever spectrum of um, ed educator you are, you're like that might be the, the child or student's only time with someone who's positive. And allowing them to escape kind of their norm of what they're living. The, my sisters, because of our trauma, the amount of times they can kind of quote teachers that were caring, you know, even years later, and they were barely in school like us. I didn't grow up going to school all the time because we were often not allowed to like the. But when my sisters were able to go, like the, the teachers that actually made an impact, my sister are like 40 now, you know, they're able to still quote some of the teachers and how they made them feel, you know, a therapist is will come and go, but like, the wise, caring, nurturing teacher, I feel like sticks with you forever. Even my, my, my wife can name some teachers. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, you can name mm -hmm. all these great people in your life that have left, like, honestly, <laughs> you can literally name so many people uh, from college years to even, you know, younger years that made, that created the, the place that makes you feel kind of safe. Like, you know, I wouldn't have scheduled my entire senior year with newspaper, even trying to get news, like the, <laughs> 
the we call it the yearbook as a newspaper class so that I could just, you know, do get through my senior year when I was already tapped out, you know, but you created that as a as a as an experience for me where I felt like, okay, I do want to come to school. I, I do want to, I feel safe, you know, I, I feel like someone's advocating for me. Like, you know, you get to do that in your field to help people who are already struggling in life feel safe, you know, when home isn't safe. <laughs> It's true. Teachers are great. <laughs> well, I'm biased, you know. Well, you know, some of us are better than others, but <laughs> That's true. You know, it's like therapists. Not all therapists are good. And it's okay to fire a therapist, you know. And that is true. Well, you know, I always hear that like, oh well, I had a horrible therapist. Yeah, there's not a lot of good therapists out there, but there also are a bunch of other good therapists out there too. You right. Know? And you the thing about school is you don't really get to pick your teachers. You kind of get what you get. Like they say in preschool, you get what you get and you don't get upset. But with therapy, you can pick and choose. And sometimes it's like a bad first date and you don't want to go out with this person again. So let me find someone who fits for you in your little corner of Maine. Are you the only EMDR trauma informed clinician or are there others? There are others, but we're limited. We are okay. so limited. I've had people on wait lists for like seven months a year. Uh, wow. We are limited. Um, I would say probably the closer you are to Portland Lewiston, which is like two hours south, probably a little bit more because it's a bigger city hub. Um, Bangor tends to recruit some of the um, clientele who are more rural. So I, I do have a lot of people, not just in Bangor who I see, but like from more rural communities that I have to telehealth with. I would say that it, there's not a lot of us. Um, that's for sure. Not like South Florida. There's a lot more resources and you know professionals that are trained in EMDR down that way than they are in the state of Maine. With you and the other trauma trained clinicians in your area, is there talk amongst all of you of like ways to get others trained or bring them to the area? That's a good question. Um, the state of Maine in itself has such a provider shortage from psychiatrists to nurses to even obviously clinicians. Um, when I do kind of this like monthly supervision with, so the agency that I like, I'm private practice and my company is called Greater Love Counseling, but I also am affiliated with Health Affiliates of Maine, which like helps um, those like me who want to kind of start private practice, but don't want to like deal with insurance panels by myself and like dealing with the, the headaches there. But in that um, organization, like we do monthly supervisions and we get to kind of like share ideas and brainstorm some thoughts like that. And they do a great job because they do serve Southern Maine to Northern Maine and, you know, West and East. Um, and so we do talk about like, okay, can we do something with trainings? Cause they do provide trainings within themselves. But with EMDR, it really requires like a, someone who's not just fully trained in EMDR like I am, but also credentialed in EMDR. That's a little bit harder to come by because you have to have like X amount of like, like completion of like full EMDR sessions. And then like it, it, it is a process and a pretty expensive process to maintain. I was like, so I paid like a thousand something dollars to get fully trained and I'm trained for life. Whereas uh, those who are like tra trained consultants, they have to maintain like $300, $300 to $500 a year to keep their like credentialed like aspect live. So yeah. it, it's kind of a barrier to just have somebody regularly train. Um, like the guy who trained me was through Andrea, but he was in Massachusetts. You know, I think about all these communities that have any kind of trauma, you know, it, not just school shootings, but, you know, anything with gun violence or abuse or, you know, what have you, it would be so beneficial. And I know you know this, but it would be so beneficial to have enough people who could help because if there's only a handful of you in your area, I'm sure there is a huge wait list. And then you'll all get burnt out, you know, whatever your working hours are back to back to back to back. I I'm sure it's exhausting. I have some days where I'm I'm literally from nine to six p.m. I'm wow, I, I, and it's, it is back to back, like hour to hour. Um, then I have a little bit more free days, uh, but it is. Um, but that's also the beauty of private practice. I get to do that. There's a lot of individuals who are working in 
agencies like the hospital of my, that I worked at that really are getting piles and piles of work, you know, that they don't get to control. And that leads to the burnout and the mm -hmm. poor, poor wages and poor benefits. You know, that also contributes to everything too. I would say that the hospital here locally gets probably, they are unfortunately the biggest uh, server, I would say, of the community because they also have an outpatient clinic, mm -hmm. you know, but even they are so backed up, you know, and I was working inpatient trying to refer my clients to our own facility. They were on wait list too. It was just yeah. hard to get people in, even on a telehealth like platform. And currently, I'm not sure, just kind of like teaching there are like, you had to get licensed in every state, you know, and not every state has, you know, like reciprocity, you know, right. and the working on that, you know, could that would alleviate some of the barriers because maybe we can have like people from Florida cover some people in Maine, you know, even by, by like telehealth. But right now that's still in like the works, um, active works. And like, they're really working on that through our legislation right now. Hopefully it'll make its way through and you'll be able to service more people by having others in the area who can kind of take stuff off your plate so that you can, I don't want to say take on more, but <laughs> maybe divide and conquer a little. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I, I kid you not when I tell you that I've talked to so many other agencies, not even private practice workers, and everyone has a wait list. I remember when I was looking at to even leave the hospital and join this community agency that was a little bit more flexible. I asked them if I could bring some of my own clients and they're like, well, we prefer you don't because we have a wait list of like 800 people. Oh my God. You no know, children. And that's another thing is there's just not enough child like trained therapists out there or geriatrics therapists out there, you know, there's, or who, you know, specialize in like, you know, the aging brain, it really mm -hmm. it's hard to find the, the niche here in rural communities like Maine um, that you might find in other places. But in reality, it's just as bad in other states too. You know, it's just bigger cities. There's more people who might enter the field, but it comes with its own issue as well. You know, the burnout, the lack, the wages, I, I get paid more as a therapist even work at the hospital than my colleagues in Florida do, you know, starting out. So, and Florida is more expensive to live, especially South Florida. Yes, it is. I have known you for a very long time. I, I had hair then. You did. <laughs> <laughs> I had hair there. I didn't have gray in my beard. That is true. I think you would have been a fabulous journalist, but I think you have really found your calling and you are helping so many people. And this is clearly what you were meant to do. I truly feel like I finally am like that puzzle piece that have found my, my set where I, I, I felt for so long, I was like trying to force myself into other sets. And I'm like, wait, I just don't belong here. And then got mad about the process. But now, like, even when I was at the hospital with, with its own challenges, I always felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And it true, it's so true. I'm so happy. I, I love the work that I do. And I'm just always inspired with the work that I do to the point that I'm getting a doctorate in my field to contribute to uh, the work that we do as social workers. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence on Instagram and threads at Teachers Unify and follow the podcast on both platforms at Teachers Unify PC. Mm -hmm.